turn for our reading together, please, to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. And it did not, was not put in your bulletin, but additionally, if you'd like to find your place in Romans chapter 3 and hold that, I shall read from two different texts of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. But for us also to whom, sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. If you will, take your hymn book and stand with me again, singing with regard to this theme, number 227. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, low he dies upon the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected, yes, believers, yes, tis he. Tis the long-expected Savior, David, 
Son, and David's Lord, sacrificed to bring a slaver. Tis a true and faithful word. Tell us ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands conspired to wound him, none would enter close to save, but the heaviest stroke that bound him was Supported, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God, Lamb of God. For sinners wounded, sacrifice which cancels guilt, none shall ever be confounded who on thee their hopes have built. Thank you. Be seated. <clears throat> Behold, he dies. As you know, we have now for several months been laboring in the book of Judges to extract these lessons enshrined there in that record. Lessons that are designed to admonish our souls in the desire to be servants of the Lord like unto those recorded there. We have, of course, as you know, taken a few detours. And usually between chapters, I would entertain a gospel message. I say I've taken a few detours. Started on last week to carry on in our study and Judges chapter 8 and started a message there but wanted to stop actually did not get far at all hardly beyond my introduction in that message but for some time I've had it on my heart to go back and bring to you again a message in this subject many of the lessons that we've studied have been 
exercises and rigid discipline to our souls and we have retained our faithfulness in those things and trying to extract lessons and apply them to our hearts. But today, those of you who know me best know that this is my favorite and all-consuming subject, the subject of Calvary. It is common knowledge, I think, among you, certainly among my family, that should I be allowed to have a funeral, that the songs would all be around surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. Songs like the old rugged cross. And uh, that theme occupies my heart always more than any other. I've said it before, but I will say it again. I remember that sacred day, that life-giving day, when in my youth I first came to Christ for mercy. I remember quite well the soul-drowning weight of sin that I thought would drag me down to hell that very hour. I remember the horror of that vision in my soul of God's impending wrath against my sin that the preacher brought from the pulpit that morning. In a, I feel that I, in a sense, smelled the very smoke and saw the lightning and heard the thunder as that thrice holy God came down on the Mount Sinai of my heart that day in that gospel message. I remember all of that, all of which made my youthful soul to quake and shudder and left me melted like water poured out on a parched desert floor. I remember it well. Sometimes I remember it and tears flow down my face again. But oh, I want to say to you, it wasn't that law. It wasn't that thunder. It wasn't the lightning. It wasn't the smoke that melted my soul and raised my hopes, quickened my spirit and impelled my soul to arise and flee from that wrath that day. Oh no, if the preacher had stopped there, I would have no more testimony today to you than those in Revelation 6 and 17 who said, For the great day of the wrath is coming. Who shall stand? That's all I could have said. But he didn't stop there. Blessed be God that day he went on and he set before my opening mind, the words of Josiah Condor in the 1850s, he set before my opening mind a dying deity, a suffering Savior, a crucified Christ, a languishing Lamb, 
a sovereign substitute, a bleeding beloved, a mutilated mediator. Whoa, what other words could I find to describe him? Language fails me. This sight is what turned my despair into delight, my fears into faith, my horror into hope, my hell into heaven. This sight, the sight of Calvary. It's interesting, that word Calvary, I don't have this in my notes, but that word is interesting that the translators, the word in the Greek, of course, is the word from which we get cranium. It's the place of the skull. In the Hebrew, it's Golgotha. But it's interesting that the translators chose to use the Latin word and transcribe the word Calvary. All those words, Calvary, Golgotha, all referring to that same place, the place of the skull. This is the theme that constantly occupies my mind, while other themes are passing by from time to time. My heart always, like that dove of Noah, comes back and lights here Calvary like a homing pigeon who cannot rest until her feet find home my soul is never so much at rest and my spirit never so much exalted as it is when I find myself on the soil at Calvary This is blessed and blood-soaked ground. Oh, how well did good old Dr. R.G. Lee, I quote him a lot, because of his mastery of the English language, not in, not in re, any worship of the man. But how well did good old Dr. R.G. Lee say it all when in 1948, he preached from 1 Corinthians 15.3 on only two words. Christ died. And among other things, the good doctor had this to say, greatly above and beyond all mountains stands Calvary. Then he began to list some. Great is Sinai, he said, sublime in solitude, robed in clouds, shrouded in smoke, illuminated with fire, where with heaven's earthquake thunders rumbling amid the crags and gorges, where with the lightnings blazing in zigzag paths across the dark clouds, the law was given Commandments which are not the ghostly whispers of a dead century, but commandments as authoritative today as when they were proclaimed broke the age-long silence of the desert. But this fountain is nothing to Calvary. Grand is old Horeb, 
where the bush aflame with the glory of a descended deity defied the laws of conflagration in Exodus 3 3. But this mountain is nothing to Calvary. And horror, where his spirit ready to wing its flight to realms of day, Aaron transferred his priestly robes to his son and died in number 33. And oh, Pisgah, from whose lofty height Moses saw the land which God swore unto Abraham, and Ebal and Gerizim, from whose neighboring sides the blessings and curses were pronounced in Deuteronomy 11, and Carmel, where God answered Elijah's prayer with fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18, and Tabor, in whose shadow and on whose slopes the stars in their courses fought with Barak and his 10,000 men to overthrow Sisera and his, and his hosts in Judges chapter 5. All of these great mountains, but nothing compared to Calvary. Oh, Moriah stands there where the leadership of Solomon, 160,000 men, toiled seven and one half years to build a holy and beautiful temple. Then there's the tri-peaked Hermon where Jesus was transfigured, his countenance brighter than the sun, his garments whiter than snow. Oh, and who could forget all of it, all of it of sweet farewell memories where with the clouds as his chariots and the winds as his steeds, he went back to God. But above and beyond all mountains as a skyscraper, is above a dunghill in height, as a tree is beyond a twig in fruit bearing, as a cannon is beyond a pop gun in far-reaching power. Here stands Calvary. For there, God in bloody garments dressed, according to our love. Oh, what an expression, Dr. Lee. What an expression for you to put before our hearts to entertain. Where God in bloody garments dressed courted our love. There at the interlocking of the ages, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, redeeming man from death unto life, canceling man's debt of judicial obligation by an equivalent which afforded legal satisfaction, voluntarily passing under death's dreadful shadow, though owing the law no debt at all. There on Calvary with power to smite his enemies with a thunderbolt, he elected to die on a cross. There on Calvary, God's eternal attributes emptied their vials of burning wrath upon the sinless sacrifice in agony enough to make the world shudder, the sun in darkness hide, and spears go wailing along their eternal circuits. There God's eternal attributes emptied their vials. God the Father of the clouds permitted him to thirst who came to remove moral thirst of mankind. There at Calvary, there at Calvary, God, who closed the valleys with corn and 
feeds the young ravens when they cry, left his naked son under the sky and answered not his cry. There at Calvary. Oh, Dr. Lee said, no wonder. No wonder the heavens went back. Oh, no wonder the heavens went back and the sun withdrew its light and the earth reeled in its steady course as in astonishment that love so sweet, so vast should meet with so fearful a doom. No wonder, he said, the rocks rent. The rocks were less hard than the men's hearts that day. As those shattered that so great a love could find so ungrateful return. Oh, <laughs> he said earth was no darker, has no darker sin. History has no blacker page. Humanity has no fouler spot than this place called Mount Calvary. Not by his sinless life was Jesus man substitute. Not by his miracles did he honor the law and satisfy justice and meet the demands of divine holiness. Not by his beautiful example did he take our place under the law. Not by his preaching did he open a fountain for all uncleanness. Not by his character did he repair the insulted dignity of God's nature. Only by suffering and death, which was expiatory, only with that, only with that was God's government appeased and boundless mercy sent to man only that way and only at Calvary. Somebody else said Calvary. Calvary was the abyss of the world's greatest sorrow and the summit of the world's greatest hope. <laughs> Calvary. Oh, James Stalker in 1894 well, has well said this in, of this incomprehensible scene at Calvary. Stalker said, if ever the hand of the Creator seemed to be withdrawn from the rudder of the universe, and damnable chaos reigned, and the course of human affairs seemed to be driving down headlong into the gulf of an irretrievable confusion, if ever this was the case, it was when he who was the embodiment of all moral beauty and word hung on a Roman cross and died the death of a malefactor. It was when he who was the light of the world perished in a hellish darkness. It was when he who created life himself drowned in the black ocean of death. It was when he who knew no sin absorbed the shocking blows 
of the wrath of Almighty God against sin. It was when He who made new wine out of nothing more than common water languished in thirst from a cruel tree parched by the fires of a Christ holy God. Oh! It was when He who healed every manner of disease bled the death from gaping gashes without so much as a rag to staunch the flow. Oh, this was surely, this was surely the scene of a world gone mad with an intoxicating insanity of sin's vile poison. Oh, surely every home, sorry, every hour, surely every hour of this compacted hell, that's a quote, Some kind, somebody called the hours at Calvary a compacted hell. Surely every hour of this compacted hell could be inscribed with the words of Isaiah the prophet when in chapter 9 and verse 17 he said this, of his wrath toward Israel. He said his hand was stretched out still. After the first hour at Calvary, it could have been said, his hand was stretched out still. After the second hour, it could be said, his hand was stretched out still. The third hour, the fourth hour, and on until all six hours were consumed in this hellish torture, and his hand was stretched out still against the sun. Six hours of hellish torture. Robert Hall, sometime in the 1820s, said this. When the great ruler of the world was pleased to accomplish his secret purpose of reconciling the sinful race of man to himself by the pardon of their sins and the renewal of their natures, he saw fit to appoint his son to be their surety, to assume their nature and to die in their stead. And then he quotes this text, Gray is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. Then he said, instead of endeavoring to explore all the secret reasons of this wonderful economy, it rather becomes us thankfully to accept and devotedly to adore it. It is sufficient for us to perceive that no method within our comprehension could have equally provided for the display at once of his justice and of his mercy, his spotless purity and his infinite compassion. In making his son the sacrifice, justice appears in its almost utmost splendor, while in freely giving him up for us all, mercy appears in its most attractive form. All the highest lessons of purity and holiness are learned at the foot of the cross. You hear me? You hear me? You hear Robert Hall in the 1820s? Listen to what he said. Let me say it again. 
the highest lessons of purity and holiness are learned at the foot of the cross. And if we are desirous of discovering an effectual antidote to the love of sin, it must be the serious and steady contemplation by faith of Christ crucified. On no other occasion did love ever stoop so low, endure so much, or operate in so free and spontaneous a matter. In another place, Robert Hall said, it is a trial of human fortitude merely to think of what he actually endured. Did you get it? It's a trial of human fortitude just to think of what he actually endured. The cup of sorrow put to the lips of the babe of Bethlehem was never withdrawn until he drank off its dregs at Calvary. <laughs> oh, can I say that again? Let your heart get around it. The cup of sorrow was put to the lips of the babe in Bethlehem, and it was never withdrawn until he drank off its bitter dregs at Calvary. In addition to poverty in all its rigor, in addition to reproach in all its virulence, in addition to temptation in all its malignity, and to crucifixion with all of its ignominy and pain, he had to endure mental agony, the most fearful and mysterious Agony which sought relief in prayers and supplications accompanied with strong crying and tears and which threw his agitated frame into a bloody sweat. The strange alarm and apprehension, the poignant grief, the sore amazement, the overpowering dread which seized his whole soul in the garden of Gethsemane and the withdrawal of all sensible support and of all expression of divine complacency in the endurance of the mountain load which oppressed him and which wrung from his lips its piteous cry of felt desertion on the hill of Calvary constitute a state of suffering which can neither be described nor even imagined. Calvary. He died at Calvary. Oh, let that word savor that word in your soul's mouth. Calvary. Oh, this is a seed of sacred tragedy. A scene of redemption. A scene of love divine, all loves excelling. <laughs> Charles Wesley wrote in 1747, This is a scene of love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Calvary 
This is the scene on which our regenerated hearts are fixed with an eternal and uninterrupted gaze. Calvary. This is our hope. This is our health. This is our wonder and our salvation. The question to my heart this morning is not how long will we look, but how can we ever look away? Oh, this is a subject worthy of eternal interest. Blessed R.G. Lee again in describing the beauty of Christ said this. He said when Christ was born a world was in crisis. Then God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus who was from everlasting the ancient of days became the infant of days, a baby as old as his heavenly father and ages older than his earthly mother. Jesus, who made all things in creation, was made flesh in incarnation and bent the date lines of all nations around his manger cradle. Jesus, who created angels, was made lower than angels. Jesus, who was born before Abraham, was born 2,000 years after Abraham. Jesus, who was David's son, was David's Lord. Jesus, who carried a nation out of Egypt, was carried as a babe back into Egypt. Jesus, who made all flesh, was made flesh. That day that he was made flesh, when a Jewish virgin who never knew a man traveled and travailed in a road onto a mysterious land of motherhood and came back holding in her arms the only baby who never had an earthly father. His every muscle was a pulley divinely swung. His every nerve was divine handwriting. His every bone was divine sculpture. His every heartbeat was divine pulsation. His every breath was a divine whisper. His every cry of God was no language but a cry. What a thing. Why did he do all of this? Why did he come? John twelve twenty seven tells us for this cause he came to die. Oh, in another place, Dr. Lee in the book called The Rose of Sharon said Jesus set his face to walk the last foot of the Calvary road to bleed the last drop of Calvary agony to suffer the last minute of Calvary pain, to drink the Calvary cup to the last bitter dregs, to tread the wine press until the last cluster was trodden dry. And he had to the divine, and he had to be divine to have held up such a face all the way from Bethlehem to Calvary. Dr. Lee said, sometimes I wonder how even the strength of the Son of Man could endure to keep on walking in this road. No wonder there came hours when he was so tired he could sleep through a storm that lashed the sea into a fury. 
I'm not surprised that he sat down upon a well curb to rest. And somehow I seem to catch some of the pathos of the statement that's been put into this song. When the songwriter wrote these words, Thou didst leave thy throne in thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home there was found no room for thy nativity. Thou camest, O Lord, with thy living word. Thou shouldst set thy people free. But with mocking and with scorn and with crown of thorn, they bore thee to Calvary. Oh, Calvary, Calvary. Someone has said in 1899, it is well known that after the death of our Lord, the peculiar possession of the mind of the church was that in the apostolic writings, his death and resurrection figure more prominently than his miracles and teachings. In fact, the apostolic theory of Christianity is built upon his death, resurrection, and ascension. His death and shed blood especially occupies a vast space in the apostolic field of vision. It is by his death that he's the savior of the world. Now it is sometimes contended that in this respect there is a striking discrepancy between the teaching of the apostles and that of Christ himself. But in the, synop in the synoptics there's not more than a couple of sayings of his about his death which are of capital importance. He builds Christianity so it seems upon a totally different footing than his sayings. But the impression that Jesus referred but little to his own death is due to the superficial reading of the Gospels. A closer acquaintance with them reveals the fact that at no period in his ministry was the thought of his death foreign to him. And that during the last year of his life, it was ever present and his absorbing preoccupation. He never spared his would-be followers the knowledge that their adherence to him would imply sacrifice, perhaps even the sacrifice of life itself, that the subject which occupied his thoughts in his solitary musings was his death admits of no doubt. It grew upon him from day to day and from month to month. He had to master the mystery and penetrate its secret. Sometimes it rose upon him as an overwhelming horror. At other times he saw beyond it and could almost welcome it. This double point of view is expressed in the characteristic saying of the period. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Luke 12 and verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He said it almost pensively and reflectively. He said it all. How am I straightened till it be accomplished? 
Calvary. Oh yes, this was the theme of his heart. And if of his heart, how much more should it fasten our attention? I haven't even made it to Calvary this morning. I haven't even made it to Calvary this morning. I've only just tried to introduce you to it. We hadn't even gone there. But I ask you this morning, how much does Calvary occupy your mind, your heart? How much does it shadow, cast its grim face across your heart daily? Calvary. Golgotha. Place of the skull. He died there. What a great servant that was. I read you just a few words. What a great servant that was. He preached on Christ. Died. Behold. He died. God help us to see it. Stand with me please and we sing again in that same theme number 232 232 standing please he dies a friend of sinners dies low Salem's daughters weep around a solemn darkness veils the skies a sudden trembling shakes the ground He dies, the friend of sinners dies. Lo, Salem's daughters weep around. A solemn darkness veils the sky. A sudden trembling shakes the ground. Ye saints approach the anguish view of him who groans beneath your load. He gives his precious life for you, for you, he sheds his precious blood. Here's love and grief beyond the degree. The Lord of glory dies for men. But lo, what sudden joys we see. Jesus, the dead, revives again. The rising God 
forsakes the tomb up to his father's court he flies cherubic legions guard him home and shout him welcome to the skies break off ye tears ye saints and tell how high your great deliverer reigns sing how he spoiled the hosts of hell and led the tyrant death in chains. Say live forever, glorious King, born to redeem and strong to save. Then ask, O death, where is thy sting, and where thy victory boasting grave?